Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to lesson number six of Secrets of the Bible. If you thought things were getting secretive up until now, you ain't seen nothing yet. We've saved our best for last. Before we get started with the content of the class, I want to um, say that I'm dedicating tonight's class to the Rafua Shalema, to the full and speedy recovery of my grandfather. Um, his name is Tzvi Hirsch HaKohen Ben Shprinza, and he should have a, a Rafua Shalema Kreva, a very speedy and full um, uh, recovery. So tonight's class is dedicated to, to, his, uh, to his good health. Okay, so tonight, like I said, we've saved the best for last. This is lesson six. I want to begin with a story. You should know this is a story that rabbis have told for many, many years. And it's like a story slash joke, but it's a little bit different than the one-liners or whatever that I usually share. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. So they say that there used to be a magid. You know what a magid is? A magid is somebody who, well, I mean, probably the, the best... Um, translation that I could give for a maggot is a traveling preacher, but like a Jewish preacher, somebody who would go around, a rabbi who would go around from town to town, village to village, and would give sermons. And the communities would pay him to kind of inspire the community. So he would travel the, the countryside, travel, you know, the country, and that was his job. He was a traveling rabbinic speaker. Yeah, that was his job. That was his gig. So they tell a story about a Magid who had one speech. You know, usually you have to have more than one speech. You, know, if you think you could show up any Shabbat in a synagogue, in a community, you would think you have to have multiple speeches. This guy had one speech. And what was his speech? It was on Korach, on, this, on the topic of, that we're going to explore tonight, the story of Korach. So, but how did he get away with it? I mean, if it was the Torah portion of Korach that week, okay, all right, so it's a timely discussion. But a, a random Shabbat, a random weekend to speak about the story of Korach, how did he pull it off? So they used to say like this. They, they said about, it, about him, they used to do this. He would stand up by the podium in the synagogue, and he would reach into his pocket and pretend to pull out a piece of paper with his notes and pretend to drop it. And he was looking around the floor and he says, I can't find it anywhere. The earth must have swallowed up my speech, just like Korach. Speaking of Korach, that's the way, that's his intro. By the way, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, don't worry. Stay tuned for tonight's class as we talk about the story of Korach. And spoiler alert, the earth swallows him up. Anyway, I told you it's not one of my usual one-liners. Nonetheless, it's, a, it's, it's you know, 18th century Jewish humor, if that's what you wanted to encounter. Before Jerry Seinfeld, this is what, uh, what Jews found funny. Okay, so that's, uh, th that's my little intro. What we're going to do tonight is study a story that is probably, I would venture to say, not as well known as our previous five stories. It's not as well known as the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil, the Sin of the Tree. It's not as familiar as the story of Noah's Ark. It's not as familiar to most as the story of Jacob and Esau or the struggles between Joseph and his brothers or the gold, sin of the golden calf and the shattering of the tablets. Nonetheless, although the story may be maybe not as famous, it holds no less of an importance in our lives and in our, 
in our faith. And so tonight we're going to tell, question, and put back together the incredible story of Korach. This is the story of Korach's failed rebellion. And I will tell you this, Korach, our main character tonight, our hero slash villain, mainly villain, Korach had it all. He had it all. He had wealth. He had connections. He had prestige. He had privilege. He had honor. But he wasn't satisfied. He went on a personal vendetta. He sowed hatred and division amongst the Jewish people, and he fractured a nation. And as a result, he met with an unprecedented and horrific end. Today, we're going to take a fresh look at the Korach story, through the lens of Kabbalah, through the lens of Jewish mystical insights. There, from the place of Kabbalah, we will be learning a story like you've never seen before. You can learn the story of Korach anywhere else, but you're not going to learn it the way you're going to learn it tonight, right here with me. We're going to take the story apart piece by piece, dismantling it with our questions and our analysis, and then reconstruct it, piece it back together exquisitely using the insights from what we, what we call the soul of Torah, the Jewish spiritual wisdom. And in the process, in the process of piecing back together this story of Korach, we're going to walk away with powerful life lessons that you and I can apply to our own lives today. Once again, like we've done in all of our classes, this lesson will follow the same tried and true five-step formula. And what are the five steps? Number one, we're going to tell the story. Number two, we're going to question the story. Number three, we're going to share the mystical Kabbalistic insights. Number four, we're going to answer all the questions, piece the story back together again. And number five, we're going to walk away with powerful life lessons. All right, friends, this is going to be an incredible ride. I'm glad that you're here with me for the journey Let's roll. We begin by telling the dramatic story. I want to just emphasize one more time what I said before because it's really important. Um, Korach was not an ordinary fellow. He was not your run-of-the-mill average Joe Jew. No, he was extraordinarily learned. He was connected. He was respected, and he was wealthy. In fact, he was so wealthy that there's an expression in Yiddish about his wealth Unmute yourself if you can tell me the Yiddish expression for wealth that comes from the story of Korach. Who's got it? Yiddish expression for wealth from the story of Korach. Where are my Yiddishists? Who is my Yiddishist? Okay, I'll share it just because I know everyone's being humble. The expression is Reich Vikorach. Which Reich means rich, V means as, Koirach is Korach, right? Reich vi Koirach means that person, Chaim Yankel, oi, he's Reich vi Koirach, he's, he's as wealthy as, as Korach. And it's not a joke, and it's not like, uh, you know, uh, an opposite, you know, euphemism. Korach was ex- extraordinarily wealthy, connected. Learned, he was not an ordinary fellow. So as we read this story, as I am about to read the story, I want you to keep this in mind. We're not dealing with a simple person. Not going to be a simple understanding of this story. 
Very sophisticated individual. All right, I'm going to read the story as always, like I've said in previous classes, as I read, follow along, and at the same time, think of questions that you have on the story. Spoiler alert, some, some of the weeks that we've done this, we've had multiple iterations of the story, like part one, part two, part three. Tonight, we have one story. It's going to be in one section, so this is it. Think of all your questions now because this is happening. This is real time. No training wheels for this moment. All right, I'm going to share my screen with you. You should all have the book, um, but either way, it's, I find it easier to share my screen so that we can all be literally on the same page. This is text one, page 174 in your books, Korach's argument. Here we go. Korach. Oh, one more thing I should mention. At any time, feel free to unmute yourself, ask a question, jump in with a comment, you know, um, clarification, whatever you need, or throw it into the chat box. This is meant to be a conversation. All right. Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Levi, so he was a Levite, took up and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, children of Reuben. So this was the group... Yes. He, he's this wealthy, connected guy. Yeah. What's he doing with Dalton and Abiram? These guys are troublemakers. They're rebels. Good question. He was causing trouble at the beginning with Moshe, before, the, before they got out of Egypt. Excellent question. Good. Hold your question. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Good. Good, good, good. All right. So what is he? So good. Excellent. Hold the question. So Korach, along with Dathan and Abiram, and own the son of Pelet, all of them rise up. Or take up, uh, as you'll see, they take up an issue. They rose up, ver, uh, line five, they rose up before Moses with 250 men from the children of Israel, chieftains of the congregation, those called to the assembly, men of renown. They congregated upon Moses and Aaron and said to them, Enough! The entire community is holy, and God is amongst them. Why do you raise yourselves above the congregation of God. Moses heard, and he fell on his face. Let's continue. Moses' response. Moses spoke to Korach and to all his company, saying, Come morning, and God will make known who is his and who is holy, and will bring them near to him. And the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take yourselves pans, Korach, and all his company. Put fire in them and place incense upon them before God tomorrow. And the man whom God chooses, he is the Holy One. You have taken too much upon yourselves, sons of Levi. Let's continue. Then Moses pleads with Korach and his uh, cohort. Please listen, sons of, Le of, of, of Levi or Levi. It, is it not enough that the God of Israel has distinguished you from the congregation of Israel to draw you near to him, to perform the service in the tabernacle of God and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. He drew you near and all your brothers, the sons of Levi with you, and you seek also the priesthood. Okay, that was Moses' attempt to appeal to Korach. Doesn't work. And so here is the final conclusion of the story. The ground split between them. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed them and their houses. 
they and all they possessed descended alive into the abyss. The earth covered them up and they were lost to the community. And a fire came forth from God and consumed the 250 men who had offered up the incense. Two forms of demise. The earth opens up and swallows some of them. The 250 people who brought the fire offering, the incense, they were burnt up, consumed by a fire from God. And they lost their lives as well. Okay, this is the story. I'm going to stop sharing so I can see all of you. And now I turn to you and I ask you, what questions did you have on the story? Feel free to unmute. Yes, Adina Malka. Um, what percent of the population was lost? 250,000? I mean, that's a lot of Jews. No, 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 no thousand. 250. Oh. I'm not minimizing it, but it's not 250,000. 250. Oh. There were about 2 million Jews, but Korach did have a following. And even if he didn't have a following that was ready to bring incense as part of the 250, as we see in the story, it's not quoted here, but take my word for it. You can look it up in, in, in the book of Numbers yourself. Korach had quite the following. We'll see soon also how he got that following through interesting marketing tactics. But um, he definitely had a following. What percentage? I don't know. But it seems like there was some traction gain in his uh, um, descent against Moses. I have a question. Yeah, Jay, go ahead. Good. Yeah. What? Why in many cases is God's response always the same thing? We're going to kill a bunch of people. You know, like the golden calf, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, right. Come on, have a dialogue. <laughs> Let's talk it out. Why, why the violence? Okay, good. Good question. Excellent question. All right, more questions. Jump in. Rabbi. Yes. pain as well. Sorry. How did he obtain wealth? Ah, how did he obtain his wealth? That's a really good question. I feel like it is discussed in the commentaries, and I'm trying to rack my brain to see if I can recall how he got his wealth. Um, I feel like there's a discussion somewhere about this. I cannot recall, though. I cannot recall. It might be that he was working for Pharaoh in some sort of pyramid scheme. That was a joke, by the way. That was a joke. No. Um, no. So how did he earn his wealth? I don't. I, I, I cannot recall. I cannot recall. <laughs> I, how, being, being wealthy. How could he be considered wealthy? Rabbi, being wealthy yeah. certainly is... Uh, as an entree to why he gathered so many people. Uh, his, uh, exactly, exactly. It's like the fellow who, 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 got, who uh, unfortunately lost his money, and he's crying, and his wife says, all right, listen, it's just money. It comes, it goes, you'll, you'll get it back. He's like, no. Suddenly I became, I, I became foolish. I used to speak, and everybody would listen, and now no one wants to listen anymore. My ideas must have gotten <laughs> And of course we know, right, uh, it's... Exactly. So, yes, there was a measure of influence, but we see also that he was, there were other ways that he, uh, he wielded influence. Um, I heard somebody else ask a question. Who was asking? Anastasia? Hi, that was us. Oh, hold on. You know what? Hold on one second. Anastasia, and then we'll go to Dasya Meira. Okay, Anastasia, go ahead. 
Uh, I have a question. Is there any meaning for Moses heard and fell on his face? Excellent question. What's the meaning of Moses falling on his face? I'm going to give you a simple, straightforward answer, but maybe we'll have a deeper answer based on tonight's discussion. The simple meaning is that he was like heartbroken, that his own family would turn against him, and either was disbelief or agony or pain or an attempt to, you know, just appeal and, 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 and kind of, you know, humble himself before the antagonists, before those that were provoking it could be one of the, you know, any, any number of the above, but it's a good question. Okay, Dasi and or Meira, go ahead. So back to the wealth question. When the Jews left Egypt, we took, like, wealth from the Egyptians. So how, yes. could, how could any of the Jews, namely Korah, be wealthy compared to the other Jews when they were all super wealthy? Excellent question. Excellent question. Um, I would imagine that everyone else blew their money on ice pops in the desert. I mean, that's, or ice cream cones. That's what I would imagine. I'm kidding. So what, what, so the question that's being asked is, um, we have a tradition, or the Torah tells us even, that the Jewish people essentially cleaned out Egypt from the wealth, which in truth is, on a spiritual level, is really the wealth that Joseph had procured for Egypt as viceroy. So it was in the family. They just took the mishpacha's money that was being held by the Egyptians. Whatever, right? At least that's our story. By the way, the Talmud tells a story that the Egyptians once came to the Jews in Israel. And they said, we want our money back. We know what it says in your Bible. You took out all our money. No, this is a legit story. The Talmud talks about this. And what did the Jews say back? Okay, we'll give it to you. But then you owe us past wages for the 210 years of slavery. So if it, a deal's a deal, but it's got to work both ways. We're not just giving you money. You're going to give us money that's going to work both ways. So they dropped the lawsuit, and that was it. Um, but that's actually recorded in the Talmud as, uh, as, a real, as a real story that happened. But to get back to your question, well, one second, one second. So the question on the table is, if everybody is wealthy, how did Korah get more wealth than the others? That really touches on the, on the question that was asked before. How did he get his money? And I, I don't recall. I guess what it means is relative to everybody else that had, you know, certainly enough means to get by, relative to everyone else, he was even more wealthy. One second. I think we had, Morris, before you go, yeah, Alex, go ahead. Yeah. Um, my question is, um, um, I wanted to know what does uh, Kabbalah say about the method by which uh, oh. Hashem, you know, killed Fantastic question. Excellent question. Tonight, you're going to get the answer to that question. In fact, I'm going to give you the answer to that question based on Kabbalah and the meaning of the incense and the fire and being consumed by the divine fire. So why did some die by falling into the earth or by being swallowed by the earth? And why did some perish by fire? Tonight, we're going to answer both of those questions. Excellent question. Um, uh, uh, one second, Mike, you want to go in? Yeah, just, I don't know if this has anything to do with Korach, but um, um, I'm, um, it strikes me that we are re reading a fairly misogynist passage, yet the earth is defined in the feminine. Excellent. That, that just caught me, so I, I, don't know if, I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but... Excellent. By the way, you should know that in general, whenever we read about these stories in the Torah... Um, uh, like when the Jewish people were sinning or complaining or kvetching and just causing havoc amongst themselves, 
according to our tradition, it was always the men and not the women who were participating. Um, it says that with regard to the golden calf, I think I mentioned it last week. Aaron said to take the, the jewelry off your wives, etc. And he knew that the women would never give, never consent to it. He wasn't counting on the fact that the men had access to their own gold. And so they threw in their own gold. Um, for whatever reason, he wasn't counting on that. But the point is that the women were never involved in these disputes or complaints or otherwise, uh, you know, negative, negative stuff. So definitely you have a, a, a male-dominated story. Interesting that the, that the earth is described in the feminine. Look, according to Kabbalah, the earth is synonymous with malchut, which is leadership, which is a feminine quality, which is the idea of um, cultivation and birth, which is also associated with the earth because the earth is what produces life and, and, and vegetation. So let's, let's think about that and let's see if it can connect with the Kabbalistic ideas that we're exploring tonight. But a very, very uh, interesting point. Uh, Morris, go ahead. Yes. Isn't this a classic story of materialism against spirituality? Possibly. Stay tuned for more. Stay tuned for more as we explore. Okay. I have one quick question. Yes. Go ahead. Says that they gathered in front of Moshe and they came there, but then it says that their, all their houses fell into the earth. So that means how many cracks were there? Ah, uh, excellent question. So it seems it seems like they gathered to Moses and then they had conversations and then he went back to them. There was a back and forth. We edited out the story a little bit for the sake of uh, a brevity and, and space, but it seems like those folks that, that were part of this uh, campaign, either they lived near each other, which it says, this is the source of the Talmudic expression, Ayla Russia, Ayla Shrenai, woe is to the wicked and woe is to his neighbor, because they were neighbors. Korach and, and the, 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 the tribe of Ruvain that was involved in this primarily, they, were, they bordered each other. So it seems like it was in a similar vicinity. Um, but were they exactly neighbors where there was only one sinkhole, so to speak, and I swallowed them all? I don't know. Could there have been multiple cracks and fault lines that kind of pulled them in? Possibly. It's a good question. It's a good question. And maybe discuss somewhere. I'm not sure. Jay, go ahead. So it seems to me that Korach is violating a number of the Ten Commandments. He's coveting, he's exhibiting jealousy, and all that. He should be happy for Moshe. Moshe led them all these years. He got him out of science. He got him out of... <laughs> Out of Egypt, he got him to Mount Sinai, he got him the Torah, he got him the Ten Commandments. Come on, what? he earned it. You would think he would be happy for his cousin. They were cousins, by the way. You would think he would be happy for his cousin, but no. Jealousy. Good, good, good. All right, so let's, let, let me share with you my questions, okay? And I think, I think um, some of these are going to overlap some of the points that were made, and maybe some of these are new, or a little bit of a twist on, on what was mentioned already. All right, so here we go. Question number one that I have is, why was Korach wrong? In fact, it seems to me that Korach was right. What is Korach saying? Korach is championing. He's, you know, fighting for the cause of the people, of each and every individual. He's saying that everyone is holy. He's saying that God is with everyone. That sounds very Jewish, and that sounds very true. In fact, that's exactly the message that God told us at Mount Sinai. 
God said, you're all holy. And God said, by virtue of him speaking to all of us, you're all worthy of being spoken to directly. No hierarchy, no chain of command. You're worthy of me speaking to you directly. So what is wrong with Korach's challenge to the hierarchy? There's a hierarchy. There's Moses, there's Aaron, there's this, there's priests and Levites and Israelites. And Korach is saying, tear down the wall. Tear down the hierarchy. Tear down the divisions. We're all holy. We're all godly. I mean, doesn't our Bible tell us that we're all equally created in the image of God? Right? Isn't that our belief? Yes, it is. So then what's the deal with the hierarchy? But more than that, why was Korach wrong? Seems to be right. In fact, I want to share with you a text that I think you will find pretty interesting. This is not text two. Don't worry, we're going to come back to this. This is text number three. This is coming from the Medrash. Take a look at this. I'm going to read it. Text three. The entire community is holy. This is what Korach was saying. At Mount Sinai, everyone heard God proclaim, I am God, your God. So why do you elevate yourselves? That was Korach's complaint. Or that was his, that was his, um, his argument. What's with the hierarchy? What's with the spiritual class system? Everyone is holy. By the way, you should know the Ten Commandments. I didn't mention this last week when we explored the Ten Commandments. But the first commandment is Anochi. The first words are Anochi, Hashem, Elokecha. I am the Lord, your God. But the way the word your, or it's actually a, a suffix, appears, it doesn't say Anochi Hashem Elokechem. I am the Lord, all y'all's God. It says Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am the Lord, your individual God. God was speaking to every one of us every single Jew individually. So what's the notion? What's the business of there being a hierarchy? So again, question number one is, why was Korach wrong? He actually seems to be right. Okay, not only that, not only that, I have to tell you something else about Korach. And I mentioned this before. Korach was a brilliant marketer, self-marketer. What I mean to say is, he was a showman's showman. He knew how to put on a spectacle. He knew how to pull off a publicity stunt like nobody's business. He was all about getting people to know exactly what he felt and exactly what he thought, and he knew how to push people's buttons. I want to share with you now three different examples of this, of where he rails against Moses and Aaron and the establishment, the the spiritual hierarchy establishment. He's railing against it, and he's using stunts. You'll see what I mean. He's using spiritual stunts to, 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 uh, to articulate his position. I'm going to share with you a few texts now. All right, follow along, please, as I, uh, as I share this. Here we go. Text number four. This is the first episode, the first stunt, which regards, which relates to the mitzvah of tzitzit, right? Tzitzit, of course, is when you wear a four-corner garment. You're supposed to put fringes on the corners with one of the strands being tchelet, this blue wool. All right, so take a look at what he says. 
Today, by the way, most people don't have the blue wool because we're not sure which exact blue it is and where it comes from. So we just have the wool. We sorry, we just have the fringes without necessarily the color. Some people do have a tradition about the color. Anyway, text four. Korach gathered 250 magistrates, most of them from the tribe of Reuben, his neighbors. He dressed them, talk about a stunt. He dressed them in garments that were entirely of blue wool. Are you with me? 250 people dressed in blue wool clothing. They came and stood before Moses and asked him, if a garment is made entirely of blue wool, does it require it sits it, the fringes, or is it absolved? Moses answered them, it requires tzitzit. They began to laugh at him. If a garment of another sort is absolved by a single thread of blue, of blue wool, this garment composed wholly of blue wool cannot absolve itself. Okay, you understand what's going on here? He said, sorry, he dressed two, he had 250 people dress in entirely blue wool clothing. And they said to Moses, so you need fringes or not, right? By the way, what I'm talking about are these guys, right? It's it's it, the strings, right? If you, if you need something, if you have a request, feel free to ask. I can always try to pull some strings. Okay, but here's the deal. So the Torah says you wear a four-corner garment, have these strings at the four corners. Thank you. Have the strings at the four corners and, um, and put, 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 and one of them should be of blue wool. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that, that's, the, that's the protocol. So they're dressing entirely blue wool, and they say, does it need tzitzit? Does it need the corners? Does it need the fringes? And Moses says, yes. So it doesn't make sense. If a whole garment, if a whole garment of a different color is absorbed by one thread, if the whole garment has blue, it needs another thread. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. That was one claim. Take a look at the next one. This regards the mitzvah of mezuzah. Mezuzah is the scroll that we put on the doorpost of our home. Korach spring. This is text number five. Korach sprang up. I love that. It's like, he pops up. And he said to Moses, if a house is full of Torah scrolls, is it absolved from the obligation to affix a mezuzah on its doorpost? In other words, imagine a house filled floor to ceiling with Torah scrolls. Do you need a mezuzah on the front door? Said Moses, yes, it requires a mezuzah. Said Korach, the entire Torah consisting of 275 chapters does not absolve this house. And the two chapters in the mezuzah absolve it. No, he said, God did not command you these things. You have invented them yourself. He says, it doesn't make sense. If the whole, you have a house that doesn't have any Jewish books in it, any Torah books in it, nothing. And what helps the house? A scroll, a small scroll. If the house has every book in the, in the, in the book, if it has all the Torah scrolls in the world, you tell me it still needs a mezuzah. It still needs a two, two chapters on the doorpost. Doesn't make any sense. Again, that's the next challenge. These were public challenges, by the way. These weren't private challenges. These were public challenges. Take a look at the final one. This is coming from the Midrash again. Korach gathered the congregation against them, Moses and Aaron. That's what it says in the verse. So here we go. What, what does it mean, says the Midrash? He began to speak mockery, saying to the people. He began spinning a fictional tale. Take a look at this story. There was a widow in my neighborhood, says Korach, with two orphan girls, and she had one field. Mind you, they're in the desert, but nonetheless. Right, so there's a widow in my neighborhood. She had uh, two girls. They were orphans, and she had one field. When she came to plow, Moses said to her, do not plow with an ox and donkey together. 
When she came to sow, Moses said to her, Do not sow your field with mixed seeds. When she came to harvest and to stack heaps of cut grain, Moses said to her, Leave the gleanings, the forgotten sheaf, and the edge of the field for the poor. When she came to bring the grain into storage, he said to her, Contribute the priest's stew, the priest's stew from the tithe, and the first and second tithes. She accepted the judgment and gave it to him. What did she do? She sold her field and, brought, and bought two sheep, so that, she should, so, so that she could clothe herself with their shearings and benefit from what they brought forth. But when the sheep gave birth, Aaron came and said to her, Give me the firstborns, for thus has God said to me, Every male firstborn from your cattle and from your flocks you shall consecrate to God. She accepted the judgment and gave it to him. The time came to shear the sheep. And Aaron said to her, Give me the first of the shearing, for thus has God said to me, The first of the shearing of your flock you shall give to me. The woman said, I don't have the strength to resist this man. I will slaughter them and eat them. As soon as she had slaughtered them, Aaron said to her, Give me the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. <laughs> the woman said to him, Even when I've slaughtered them, I have not escaped your hand. I take an oath upon myself that they should be cherem. They should be off limits to everyone. Said Aaron to her, Okay, give them to me. For this is what Torah says, scripture says, Every cherem in Israel shall be yours. <laughs> the priest saying this, he took them and went off, leaving her and her two daughters crying. So Korach concludes his fictional tale. How contemptuously do they treat these poor people? All this they do and they attribute it to God. I told you he pulled stunts. Maybe you didn't know what I meant when I said that. I hope now you understand what I meant. He pulled stunts. He was a showman. He got on TV and he had press conferences and he made a spectacle. He was mocking and he was cynical and he was, he was trying to tear the whole operation down. And you should know that he had the money to buy the ads and he had the money and he had the influence and he got people behind him. People bought that story, right? That's, a, that's an emotional story. If you want to know how to capture hearts, just read a little bit about what Korach did. I mean, that's fantastic emotional marketing, emotional messaging right there. I mean, you saw that? Spitting a tale of, an or of a widow and orphans and how the priests, the evil priests and Levites are trying to take everything from them and leave them penniless? I, I mean, listen, I'm a rabbi. I'm this close to saying, what is this business, right? I mean, I'm, he's got me, Right? He, he was very good. He was very good. But here's the point. What, what's his message? Well, before I tell you the point, I want to ask you a question. What's his, where's he going with this? Where's, I mean, the last story you can understand, he's railing against uh, leadership. Moses and Aaron, his own cousins, by the way. Um, but what's, what's the first, what's the message about the, the, the blue clothing and the tzitzit and the house full of Torah scrolls and the... And, 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 and the mezuzah, what, where's he, what do you, where do you think he's going with this? What's his point? What's the point about the, the clothing and the, and, the, and the Torah scrolls in the home? What do you think he's saying? God makes crazy decisions. Well, I mean, that's, okay, that's, well, he was actually saying Moses made it up. He was actually saying that Moses made, you know, Moses made, the, Moses made up the law. But what else? What, where is he really getting at? Yeah. I think he's making a division between the spiritual and the material. Let me tell you the way, the way I understand it, which ties into my first question, which is, is it, I, I, it sounds like he's right. See, he was trying to, he, 
Korach's claim was simple. Everyone is holy. You don't need a priest. You don't need a Levite. You don't need a spiritual ambassador. Everyone's holy. The garments are blue. You don't need the fringes. You don't need an extra string that sticks out. Everyone is blue. Everyone is holy. Are you with me? The whole house is filled with Torah scrolls. You don't need a mezuzah. The entire congregation is holy. You don't need a representative, a string, a mezuzah, a priest. The, the entire entity is holy. Let alone based on the fact, let alone based on the fact that, uh, that they're ripping off the widows and the orphan. Anyway, that, that, was, that was Korah's claim. But the point of all of this is, number one, to show you a little bit about the persuasion tactics of Korach, but more to the point, to express with you my question, my first question, I have three questions. My first question, which is, why was he wrong? He seems right. Why do you need a spiritual hierarchy? Why do you need priests and, and, and Levites if everyone is holy? That's, my, that's question number one. Question number two. These, these, not Korah's question. This is my, my, my questions. Question number two is, why is Korach considered in our tradition to be the epitome of divisiveness? Why, why is he so, who says he's so divisive? In fact, I would argue that he's not so divisive. But let me share with you the text that refers to him as divisive. Um, let's go back now to text number two, which I skipped before because I wanted to do it now. Take a look at what the Talmud says, Tractate Sanhedrin. The Talmud says, and this, by the way, is page uh, 176. Anyone who engages in divisiveness transgresses a biblical prohibition. So if you're creating divisiveness amongst the community or whatever, you know, it's, a, it's, it's violating Torah. As it is written in the book of Numbers, what does it say? It says, and he shall not be as Korach and his company. Don't be like Korach. Be like Mike, don't be like Korach. What, what, why not be like Korach? Because Korach is the, the father, if you will, of divisiveness. He's the face of divisiveness. You look up divisiveness in the encyclopedia, Wikipedia, and you see a picture of Korach's, uh, Korach's face. My question is, why? Honestly, he doesn't seem divisive at all. In fact, he seems inclusive. Honestly, Korach seems more inclusive than Moses. Think about it. Moses is the one that's creating divisions. Moses says, you're a priest, you're a Levite, you're an Israelite. And what's Korach saying? Tear the walls down. Who's divisive now? You're telling me Korach is divisive. Korach was all about power to the people, egalitarianism. Korach was about shedding divisions, equalizing everybody. How was he the divisive one? That's my second question. I'm going to recap very quickly. We read the story of Korach, and, now, and we all ask questions, and now I'm asking questions. First question is, why was he wrong? He seems right. Everyone's holy. Number two, why is he the father of divisiveness? He's not divisive. On the contrary, he's inclusive. Everyone's holy. Everyone's on, on, an, equal, on an equal level. What's wrong with that? Third question. Third question, um, and this gets a little bit tricky because when we look at the story, and you might have noticed this before, we seem to find a bit of a contradiction within Korach. Why does Korach, question number three, why does Korach seek the priesthood? 
Did you remember that? Did you, did you notice that when we read the text? I'm going to refresh your memory by sharing the screen, going back all the way back to text number one. Look at what Moses says to Korach right here um, at lines 39, 40, and 41. It's hard to see, but I'm moving my virtual hand right near these lines. Moses says, He drew you near, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you, and you seek also the priesthood. That's what Moses says to Korach. Basically telling him, be happy, be satisfied with what you have. Why are you seeking more power? Why are you seeking the priesthood? So now we're going to ask a contradiction. What's going on here? Korach himself is talking about how, here we go. Korach is saying, the, everyone is holy. Everyone is equal. And yet, from the words of Moses to Korach, it seems that Korach was seeking a position of power, a, a, a position of prestige for himself. How do we reconcile Korach's words of equality with what Moses seems to indicate that he was looking to become a Kohen, to elevate from a Levi, a Levite, to a Kohen? How do we reconcile those two? Now, you might be thinking, easy. Korach was a liar. Korach said power to the people. What he meant was, and he said, let's tear down the hierarchy. But he only said that so that there would be a vacuum of power, an absence of leadership, and who would sweep in the head of the populist movement, a fellow named Korach. Has that happened before in history? Yeah? Has it ever happened in history where there was a hierarchy and then there was a movement to abolish the hierarchy? But then the leaders of that movement of equality themselves became the new hierarchy? Ever happened? Ever hear of communism? Right? right? Everyone's equal, except for the leaders of the Communist Party who are not equal at all. Right? I mean, um, what's the book that I'm thinking about? Animal Farm? Yes? Yes? All animals are created equal, but some are created more equal than others. Right? That's, that's the... That's the craziness that happens in these situations. So one could argue, one could argue and say, there's no contradiction. On the one hand, Korach is saying power to the people. On the other hand, uh, clearly, uh, based on Moses' words, it seems like he wanted the priesthood even to become, according to some uh, commentaries, the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. He wanted to replace Aaron. Seems like a contradiction. Some might say it's not a contradiction at all. What he was saying to, the, to everyone else, was no leadership. What he meant was, I should be the leader, right? So he was lying, like anyone has, like many people have done throughout history. Countless, in every generation, it's the same thing. Power to the people, we're all in this together, but then I'm looking for, uh, to, to be in charge. So that, and by the way, if that's how you feel about the story, you're in very good company. Many classic Torah commentaries understand this story exactly that way. He was lying. He went to the people. He told them, I'm, I'm here with you. I've got your back. These bad people are trying to impose their will on you. That's terrible. Let's throw them out. Why? So that he could step in. Many commentaries say that. But tonight, we're not going that direction. Tonight, we're going to go to the, to the Kabbalah of the story. And we're going to assume that all of these pieces are true. And we're going to try to make sense of them. What, I, what do I mean by all, by all these pieces? Number one, he really meant that everyone is equal. 
And number two, he really wanted the high priesthood. It wasn't a ruse. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't a lie. It was sincere. He really believed that everyone was equal? Yes. He really wanted the priesthood or the high priesthood? Yes. And it sounds like a contradiction? Also yes. But it's not. And how is it not? We're going to explore tonight as we uncover the Kabbalah of the story. Okay, I want to check back in with you now. Because I asked three questions. And I want to make sure that my questions made sense. Yes? Any questions on my questions? Questions on my questions? Not to question my question or to answer my question, but any clarifications needed on my question? Adina Malka, you got to unmute. What are the three? I only have two. Okay, good, good. That's a good clarification question. Here we go. Very, very short and quickly. Question number one is, why was he wrong? Or who said he's wrong? He seems right. Power to the people. Everyone's holy. Sounds right. Question number two is why is he considered to be so divisive? Why in our tradition is Korach the face of divisiveness? He wasn't divisive. He was inclusive. He was the opposite of divisive. He's saying everyone's, everyone's equal. And number three, if he was really about equality, then why was he seeking the priesthood for himself? Right? If he's really about equality, why was he seeking the priesthood for himself? Those are the three questions. Okay. Now, to understand all of this, like... I, I told you this at the first class, at the opening of the first class. I told you, number one, that we're going to study stories from the Bible that you may know in a completely different way. I told you that, but, and I've repeated that every class, but something that I may not have repeated in every class, but I think is really important right now. Sometimes you'll encounter a biblical story or, frankly, a mitzvah, a biblical commandment that kind of hits a wall of, of comprehension. And you'll hit a wall, and at some point it won't make sense. You'll be like, wait, something, something about the story or about this mitzvah or about this anything doesn't make sense. And sometimes the only way to understand it, not another way to understand it, the old, sometimes the only way to understand it is through the soul of Torah, through, through the Kabbalah, through the Jewish mystical and spiritual teachings. Sometimes it's not adding another layer is Kabbalah, but it's adding the only layer that fully answers all the questions. Which, by the way, makes sense. And I mentioned this, I think, in the first class. You know, the Kabbalah is called the soul of, of Torah. So sometimes to make sense of a body, you need to understand the soul. Right? If you want to understand someone's actions, you have to look deeper as to the motivation. So if you want to understand what happened in the story with Korach, you and I need to understand the Kabbalah of Korach. So that's what we're going to explore right now. Like I said, you'll get... A, a take on Korach wherever you look. You get it from anywhere. But the Kabbalah of Korach, that, that you're only getting here. So let's jump right in. To understand the Kabbalah of Korach, and now that I coined that phrase, I'm, I'm just going to keep on using it because I like the way it sounds. It's got some good alliteration to it. To understand the Kabbalah of Korach, I need to present two big ideas. I actually have three big ideas, but we're going to start with two big ideas. Big idea number one is, let's understand the meaning of, let's understand the meaning of the difference between Israelites and Levites and priests and high priests. What are we even talking about here, right? There are 
Yisraelim and Leviim and Kohanim, what then Kohanim Gedolim or a Kohen Gadol in the singular, one, one high priest. What's the division really all about? And, and, and what does it actually mean? What did it mean then? What did it mean today? And what does it mean spiritually? I'm going to share my screen with you. And again, you have this in your books. Uh, but I, I want to make sure that we're doing this together. So turn, please, to figure 6.1. On page 184. Now, in my version, the copy is not super great quality. So it's, it's a very faint triangle. But I'm sure in your books it's a better triangle. The shading is better. Um, but it is a triangle. Or kind of, I guess, a pyramid. Like an inverted triangle. The base is wider. And the top comes to a point. So, this is from the bottom up. Different um, classes or classifications of Jews. At the bottom, we have the Israelites. Um, above the Israelites, you have the tribe of Levi or Levi. I'm going to say Levi because that's a, a Hebrew way of pronouncing it. So, you have the Israelites at the bottom, then you have the Levites above them. Then you have the Kohanim, the priests, above them. And then you have the high priest above them. So the tribe of Levi, the Levites, or the tribe of Levi is the family or the tribe that the Levites came from. The priests were also from that tribe. And the high priest was also from that tribe. So, so the top three were really in the same, same immediate family or the same general tribe, but different, you know, different specifications within that tribe itself. So what were their respective roles? Let's start from the bottom once again. The Israelites, back in the day, in ancient times, they brought their offerings to the tabernacle where the priests performed the service on their behalf. So they, they, were, the, they were the folks that brought the offerings. Uh, sorry, that um, donated the offerings. The tribe of, of Levi, they were the ones that assisted the priests. They cared for and transported the tabernacle, Moses and Korach, they were both Levites, as you know from the story. Um, the Kohanim, the priests, who were they? They performed the service in the tabernacle, and they were the sons of Aaron. And who was the high priest? They were the holy, sorry, who was the high priest? Only one. He was the holiest of the priests, performed the most hallowed of the services, and originally it was Aaron. So this is the hierarchy that Korach was facing. And remember, Korach was level two, tribe of Levi, right here. Korach was, was on that level. And he was speaking, he was appealing to those that were at the bottom. But we want to understand this on a deeper level, not on a psychological level, like how did he get, how did he turn them against the hierarchy when he was one of the hierarchy? That's not, that's not, that's not what I want to look at right now. What I want to, what I want to look at is the spiritual understanding of, of the hierarchy. And using some terminology that we've used in previous classes, if you think about the difference between an Israelite and a Levite or an Israelite and a priest or an Israelite and the high priest, what, 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 distinguishes, what distinguishes these various classifications? So one way to look at it is as follows. The Israelites lived... And I'm going to use a word here that, uh, that, that, that has a bit of a loaded meaning to it. The Israelites lived a regular life. 
the Israelites lived a normal life. What I mean by that is they were the farmers, they were the artisans, they were the merchants, they were the business people, they were the shepherds, they were the soldiers, they were the government workers. The Israelites, right, which was the, the bulk of the people, 11 out of 12 tribes, the Israelites were the regular people, right? You're, you're, I don't mean ordinary or regular in a derogatory way. On the Just normal, the normal Jew, the Israelites. Who were the Levites and the priests and the high priests? They were different. They were unique. They were not ordinary. They didn't own land. They didn't have a regular job. The Levites and the priests and certainly the high priest, their job was exclusively within the spiritual work, within the spiritual realm. They were totally focused on the spiritual work. They served either in the temple, around the temple, with the temple, either the Levites that were assisting with the service, or they were doing the service, or they were the high priest that was overseeing the service. Either way, they were involved completely and exclusively in spiritual work. So, I want to now create two divisions, or really, I guess, one division between two categories. You have the Israelites, and you have the others. The Israelites are the normal people, right? They have land, they have a house, they have a job, they have a family, living a normal life, an ordinary, regular life. And then you have Levites, priests, high priests. That's the second category. And they are, they are the individuals who are living an exclusive life. Ex when I say exclusive, exclusively spiritual life. The Torah says they weren't allowed to own land. They had to live in cities that were lent to them by the other tribes. They didn't have their own land. They didn't, they didn't own their own stuff. They, theirs was not a material existence. Theirs was an exclusively spiritual existence. And now I want to turn to you and ask you a simple question. When I divide right now Israelites versus Levites, priests, high priests, two categories, and, and I'm, I'm positioning it as those that are involved living a normal material life versus those that are living a spiritually separatist life, does it ring a bell with our previous classes? Have you heard me talk about this before? Where did we talk about this before in the past? Do you remember? What was the context? context? Jacob and Esau. Yes. Remember we spoke about Jacob and Esau? How Esau was meant to be the, 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 um, the material warrior. He was meant to live a normal life, a man of the field, and meant to be a warrior in the field in a good way. And Jacob was meant to be the guy who's in the tent studying Torah all day. And then we talked about this also in history with Joseph and the brothers. How the brothers were all about, they were in the field, they were working, they were shepherds. And Joseph was with his dad studying Torah. Remember these two modalities of life? You have the people that are in the world, that are doing their jobs, that are doing the work, that are engaging head-on with the material world. And then you have people that are the separatists, the isolationists, 
the spiritual seclusionaries. I don't know if that's a word. These are people that isolate themselves in seclusion and are all about putting up the walls in spiritual, uh, spiritual um, um, indulgence. Two different modalities. Two, it's exactly the duality that we talked about before in at least two previous classes. It's the Jacob and Esau duality. It's the Joseph and his brothers duality. And it's the priest-Levite versus Israelite duality. In ancient, again, I'm going to say this one more time. In ancient Israel, if you were to travel to ancient Israel, if you were to take a time machine and go back in time, you know what you would see? You would see the majority of people owning land and going to work for a living. And then you would see a very small minority of the, of, of the nation whose only job was spiritual work. Not involved in, in plowing and sowing and tilling and farming and commerce and, and shipping and importing and exporting and building. Nothing. Just focused in and around the temple service, worshiping God. That's our template. That's the duality. We've encountered this duality before tonight. We're going to advance it further. But the first, my first big idea is the duality that we've discussed in previous classes is the duality between the Israelites and the Levites, priests, high priests. Same duality. By the way, this prompts Maimonides to say something amazingly daring, something amazingly bold. Maimonides says something that you're going to love. Before I show it to you, we're going to do it inside, but I want to first tell you what, a, 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 a little outside what he says. Maimonides says that today, yeah, disclaimer, there are Israelites today and there are priests and Levites today also. But it doesn't mean that a priest or a Levite shouldn't get a job because there's no temple and, and you got to live a regular life but this is where Maimonides comes in. I mean, there are certain things that, ha that if you're a Levite or a priest, like you'll get, a diff you'll get called up to the Torah in a bit of a different order. There's preferential treatment for a Kohen gets called up first. A Levite gets called up second. Israelites get called up after that. Um, but Maimonides says something amazing. Once you understand the spiritual theme of a Kohen slash Levi versus the Israelite, so now we can understand how no matter who you are, you can choose to be a Kohen. You can choose to be a Levite. What does it mean? You can't choose to you know, get called up to the Torah a little earlier, earlier than, your, than, your, um, than your heritage. But what it means is that you can choose to dedicate yourself to spiritual activities. And if you do that, then spiritually, you are a Kohen. Let me share the text and you'll see, you'll see exactly what I mean. Um, probably a little bit more clearly when you see it inside. Text 7, Rambam, the great Maimonides, physician, philosopher, scholar. Not only the tribe of Levi, he says. This is talking about today, right? Modern times. Well, 900 years ago, modern times. Not only the tribe of Levi, but any individual of any of the inhabitants of the world, which, by the way, the Rebbe explains means doesn't have to be Jewish, right? Everybody. 
So not only the tribe of Levi, but any individual of any of the inhabitants of the world whose generosity of spirit motivates them and who understands with their wisdom to set themselves aside, to stand before God, to serve Him and minister to Him, to know God, proceeding justly as God made them. And they cast off the yoke, sorry, and they cast off from their neck the yoke of the many calculations that people seek. That person is sanctified as a Kodesh HaKadoshim, as a Holy of Holies. That's a long sentence, but it's so powerful. Maimonides says, let's continue, and then, I'll, and then I'll paraphrase. God will be their portion and heritage forever, and he will provide their needs for them in this world, just as he provided for the Kohanim, the priests, and the Levites in ancient times. Maimonides says that any human being can choose to take on the spiritual legacy of the Kohanim. The spiritual legacy of the priests, the spiritual legacy of the Levites. How and when? By choosing God and choosing not to care so much about the material world. To cast off the yoke of all the calculations people make and people seek. You know what that means? The yoke of the many calculations that people seek. All the stuff that people are worried about, typically. All the stuff the work and the money and the prestige and the fame and the, all of the stuff that everyone's worried about. Somebody who says, I'm done with this. All I want is God and all I want is wisdom and all I want is, is Torah and Hashem. And God. That's the person that says that, they are a Kohen. Spiritually, they're a Kohen. The point of all of this is to say that the difference between, and again, I'm lumping categories together, in that hierarchy, in that pyramid or that triangle, there were four levels. I'm lumping together the top three as one. I'm collapsing the top three and making them stand opposite the bottom, which is the Israelite. So we have here are two classes, so to speak. You have the materialists, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean like hedonistic you know, behavior, but I mean people that are living a normal, everyday existence, going to work, and, and, and making money and dealing with physical stuff. So yeah, that's one, that's one modality. And the other modality is the people that shun the material stuff and are exclusively sp- focused on the spiritual. That is the spiritual legacy, as we just saw in Maimonides, of the Kohen and the Levi. That's the spiritual side. And then you have the material side. That's introduction or big idea number one. Now, big idea number two. Keep that, keep that and hold that Let it marinate, but put it on another burner because we're about to turn up the flame on a second big idea, okay? But before I do that, let me check in to make sure this first big idea is making sense. Again, I just want to clarify what we did. I took, we were discussing the hierarchy that Korach was railing against and saying, well, what's really behind it? What is is the hierarchy really about? What we've come to understand based on Kabbalah, everything I've told you now is the Kabbalistic way of understanding all of this, including Maimonides, what we've come to understand is that essentially what divides you know, one from the other is what's the focus? Is it a material focus or a spiritual focus? Make sense so far? Yes? Ish? Yes? Okay. Let's, talk, let's give the second introduction. Or the second, sorry, second big idea. The second big idea pertains to another biblical story. In fact, in fact, in the book of Numbers, this new story that I'm about to share with you is the story that immediately precedes, immediately precedes the story of Korach. So right before the story of Korach is this story 
that I'm about to share with you right now. What's the story? It's the story of the spies. It's the story of the 12 spies sent by Moses to scout out the land of Israel. Let me give you the 30-second version of this story. We don't have time to read it inside. I'm going to give you the, the, the quick overview and run-through of the story. Let's begin. The Jewish people left Egypt with the Exodus. They got the Torah at Mount Sinai. They sinned with the golden calf. They got forgiven by God. They built a tabernacle. They went through all of that. Finally, they made it. They're free. They have Torah. And they built the sanctuary for God. They built the first iteration of the Holy Temple, the portable one that they traveled in the desert with. And it's at this point, it's about a year after the Exodus, give or take, one year later, the Jewish people are ready to finally go into the promised land and settle, conquer and settle the land of Israel. But before that happens, the Jewish people get a little bit wary. And they say to Moses, do us a favor. If we're meant to conquer the land, let's get some intel. Let's get some intelligence on the ground. Let's send some spies in. They're going to seek out, search out the land, and come back with a report. What's the deal? What's the best way to get in? How strong are the people? How fortified are the cities? Etc. Moses says, done. We'll do it. He sends 12 individuals, representatives, one from each tribe, as you probably imagine, as you probably realized. He sent in 12 spies. They spent 40 days. They did a fact-finding mission. They come back, they gather everybody, and they give their report. And their report caused one of the greatest Jewish tragedies of all time. They came back and said, well, the land is beautiful and the fruit is amazing, right? We'll eat well, but there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> it's, they use this phrase. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. It is going to swallow us alive. There is no chance. We have no shot. It's, it's the people are giants. The cities are fortified. There's, there's no chance. Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. We're done. The people hearing this, they begin panicking, crying, wailing. Why are we, send, why are we being sent to the slaughter? We don't want to go to Israel. So God says, you don't want to go? I'm not going to force you. So you'll live here. Till you all die out, your children will go into the land. Forty years of wandering until this generation dies out. As Maimonides says in the Guide for the Perplexed, it wasn't a punishment. It was a natural response and actually a compassionate response by God to the people. Look, the people were traumatized. God said, I'm not going to push you into a situation that you find traumatic. So... Your kids will go in. Your kids who were born in freedom, maybe they don't have the same you know, PTSD, they can go in. But you, I'm not going to force you. And so it was. But all the commentaries wonder. The 12 spies were all holy tzaddikim. I should mention, 10 of the 12 came back with a bad report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they thumbs up the operation, but they were shouted down. Okay. All the commentaries asked the following question. All the commentaries wonder. 
The 12 spies were all tzaddikim, they were all holy. We know this because the Torah tells us they were all holy. They were all good people. How did they make such a terrible mistake? How did they fall so low to talk about Israel in such negative terms and God and, and, and have a lack of faith in God after all they had seen with their own eyes? The same God that, that brought the plagues and split the sea and gave them the Torah and the manna from heaven, God can't, can't, can't help them conquer the land? What's, what, what, what kind of lack of faith is this? I'll tell you what Kabbalah says. It's a good question. But here's what the Kabbalists say. It's precisely because the spies were so righteous that they so didn't want to go into the land. What were they, how were they living in the desert? You know how they were living? They were living spiritually large. They were living in Gan Eden, in paradise. Food from heaven. Water miraculously from a rock. Clothing from the clouds of glory. Shelter from divine shelter and protection. They had no material concerns. What did they do all day? What, this is before the internet. What did they do all day? Before WhatsApp. Yeah? What did they do? I'll tell you what they did. They studied and they prayed and they meditated. And the spies were righteous. They were tzaddikim. They were Jacobs. They were original Jacobs. And the spies said, we love it here. We love this environment. We don't want to go into Israel because you know what's going to happen the moment we cross that border? The manna from heaven stops. The miraculous water stops. The miraculous clothing stops. The miraculous protection of the cloud stops. And now real life begins. And you know what? We're going to have to get a job. And who wants to get a job? Who wants to have to work for a living? It's not about working for a living. It's about who wants to be involved in plowing the earth? Who wants to get their hands dirty and, 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 and dig in the earth when you could bask in spirituality? You understand what's happening? Remember Jacob's reluctance to embrace the blessings of Esau? Remember the fact that he wanted to marry Rachel and not Leah because he still loved the spiritual isolationism. It's the same story. The spies did not want to go into the land. And I said, I told you what they said. The land consumes its inhabitants. If we go into Israel, we are done. We're going to be like Esau. We're going to, we're going to be thrown into materialism. And before you know it, we're going to become hunters. And we're not even going to know why we're hunting. We're going to become hedonists and, and, and physical material beings and completely lose our connection with spirituality. It's better that we don't leave the desert. It's better that we don't leave God's protective embrace. And so they said, we don't want to go in. We can't do it. Not that God can't make it happen. Of course God can. But once you enter Israel, you're not going to live a, a, a miraculous life anymore. You're living a normal material life, which means if you want to defeat your enemies, so you have to put together an army. Who wants to do that? It's easier to be in the, in the, in the midbar, in the desert, and rely on God all time, all, all, the day 24, all day 24-7. In short, what I'm trying to tell you is that the spies, their error was they wanted to remain spiritual and not go into a material, physical environment. I'm not making this up. I'm going to show you um, a text where this is from. This is the way the Rebbe explains it. 
the Lubavitcher Rebbe, based on Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. Here we go. This is text number eight. The teachings of Hasidut explain the reason that the spies wanted to remain in the desert and not enter the land of Israel. It was because, like I just told you, they did not want to lower themselves to engage with material things. When they were in the desert, the children of Israel were secluded and disconnected from the material world. Even their physical food and drink were elevated above the earthly and the mundane. The, the manna served them as bread from heaven. Their water came from the well of Miriam. Even their clothes miraculously grew with their bodies. But upon their entry into the land of Israel, they would be required to eat bread from the earth. And in order to obtain it, they would be required to occupy themselves in worldly matters, in the labors of plowing, sowing, and so on. Folks, let me put this in other words. They were living in the Garden of Eden. They didn't have to work. And now they were about to enter Israel, and they looked at it as being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Who wants to leave the Garden? Who wants to leave paradise? Not them. Let's go back into the text for a second. This is why the spies did not want to enter the land of Israel. They argued that it is, quote, a land that consumes its inhabitants. It consumes those who dwell in it by turning them into earthly beings, materialistic beings, depriving them of the spiritual achievements that can be attained only by secluding oneself from the world and occupying oneself solely with spiritual pursuits. That was their intention. That was their aim. That was their goal. But as the Rebbe concludes, they made a major mistake. In truth, however, the spies erred in their approach. For the ultimate purpose of life is to make for God, so to speak, a dwelling in the lower realms, to engage with worldly things and to make them a receptacle for godliness. The period that the people of Israel were in the desert was only a preparation for the dwelling in the lowly realms that they would make when they entered the land of Israel. What the Rebbe says, and I'm going to elaborate on this in a moment, but what the Rebbe says in short is, they missed the point. They missed the whole point of life. The point of life is not to remain in the desert. The point of life is not to remain in the Garden of Eden. The point of life is not to remain in the tents of Jacob. The point of life is, maybe you start off over there, but eventually you go out into the world and when you're in the world, you make a difference. You go to work, you get a job, you interact with people, you interact with stuff, you dig and you plow and you sow, and you make and you elevate the world. Because how are you going to elevate the world from a cocoon? How are you going to elevate the world from a place of seclusion? Yeah, from a, from a secluded desert paradise tent. Not going to happen. You got to go in. To make a difference. You got to hit the ground running. You got to have boots on the ground. So they wanted to stay in the desert. And they had wonderful spiritual intentions. But they were wrong. Boots on the ground. You got to get into the land. And make a difference there. That was their mistake. That's the second big idea. So. It's on the heels of this story. That our story of Korach. Follows. And understand what I said before in the beginning of the class. Korach was a brilliant man. Korach was also a righteous man. He was brilliant. He was misguided, as we'll see. But he was smart. He was around when the story of the spies happened. He just saw it happen. It just happened. And he took one lesson from it. God wants us on the ground. God wants 
boots on the ground, digging and plowing and sowing and making a difference. So he comes to Moses and he says to Moses, you think you're so hot? You're Moses, you're Aaron, you're Levites, you're Kohanim, you're priests. You represent the spiritual life. I just, I just learned the story of the spies. What is God like? The spiritualists or the materialists? You with me on my question? What's the ultimate objective in life? To remain isolated like all y'all or to work and to live and to make a difference in the world. God wants us to make a difference in the world. Korach said to Moses, why do you elevate yourself above the people? What makes you any better than the average, so-called average Jew who is a farmer, who goes to work every day to make a living and spends most of his or her day engaged in material activities? But while doing so, you know, is, uh, is making the world a better place. What makes you better than them? On the contrary, an argument could be made that they're better than you because they're making a difference. They're making the world the home for God as opposed to being isolated from the world. This is what Korach said to Moses and to Aaron. This is how he rallied the people. Korach was a very wise man. And Korach was a very, very, a very um, perceptive individual. He said, look, there's two camps. We've seen this throughout. Jacob and Esau and Rachel and Leah and Joseph and the brothers. Again, again and again. There's two types of people. There are those that remain spiritually isolated and those that jump into the, into the fray, into the real world. And what does God love? God loves the world being transformed. So Korach says to Moses, why do you say that the priests and or Levites are higher than the others? Higher? Who says higher? Why a hierarchy? I get, says Korach, that there might be two paths in life. Some people are more of the spiritual type and some people are more of the material type. Some people like studying all day. Some people need to go to work or like going to work. I get that. So there's two different paths in life. But what makes one better than the other? One could argue that the other one's better. It's not better. It's just different. Separate, but equal. Parallel paths. The spiritual path. The We've talked about this before. Joseph and the brothers hug it out once they all realize that you need both paths. So Korach says to Moses, we need both paths. But what makes your path greater? Now, one thing to mention. Korach wanted to be the high priest. Korach wasn't about to abandon his path to adopt someone else's path. He was firmly entrenched in his path of being a Levite, of being of the spiritualist. And within that realm, he had ambitions to be the greatest spiritualist that he could. But he didn't judge those that went to work as being lower, said God, for someone who goes to work, someone who's not a scholar 24-7, someone who goes to work, they're lower? That's very, um, that's not nice. Korach seems to be right. Especially when you understand the story according to Kabbalah. Especially in the context after the story of the spies. 
Again, the story of the spies tells us that to remain spiritually isolated is not ideal. That we need to be engaged in the world. So Korach says, if that's the case, then that's also holy. So you're holy, Moses, right? And Aaron, you're holy, but they're also holy. They're, they're transforming the world into a holy. That's holy. So why, why the hierarchy? Parallel. Should be parallel. The spiritualists and the materialists. Right? Side by side. Not top and bottom. It's good. It's, a, it's now an even better point. We also understand, I mentioned parenthetically, I'm going to emphasize it again, why he sought the priesthood and why that's not a contradiction. He said, look, I'm not, I'm not an Esau. I'm an original Jacob. That's who I am. And as an original Jacob, I want the greatest spiritual experience that I could have. I would love to be a high priest. But he said, but my brothers and sisters who are out there in the world going to work nine to five, they're doing holy work. And I, and I look at them on an equal, equal footing as the scholars, as the guys in Kolel. I'm going to modernize the terminology for a second. The guys in Kolel, right, that are studying Torah all day, right, Korach says, that's great, I'm one of them. But the guys that are going to work and, and, and doing good things, making a difference in the world, being a mensch, being honest in business, giving tzedakah from the money they earn, that's also holy. And, and that's equally as holy. Sounds, sounds like he's correct. So, what's, so then why the hierarchy? So what's, why was he wrong? So here, here's, here's the final piece. The only way that path works, the 9 to 5 path, the business path, the, only, the Esau path, Esau blessing path, the only way that works is if you look at that experience as lower than this pure spiritual experience. The only way we have a shot of elevating the experience, the mundane experience, as we're involved in the mundane, the only way we have a shot to elevate it is if we look at it as mundane and as a higher target, uh, and, and that there is a higher target of spirituality. If we don't look at it that way, then we, we run the risk of ending up like Esau getting, and like what the spies feared, getting consumed by that experience. In other words, here's the paradox. The greatest potential lies in the material experience. But the only way that's realized is when a person looks at that material experience as not the ideal. It's like the means to the end. Right? There's the, there's the means and there's, and there's the end. It's a means to the end. So the material work, the material avoda, the material labor... The real-life engagement, so to speak, is a means to an end. And what's the end? Fusing the world with, with holiness, with spirituality. But if, you but if you don't look at it as a means to an end, if it's the end unto itself, then you're never going to raise it. It's all about understanding the priorities. If, it's a, if, if the spiritualist is higher, then you have something to strive toward. If the material is, is great... And you're never going to flip it. For, you're never going to flip it in the positive way. I want to share with you a text. I know I've done a lot of talking, and I, there's just a lot to cover in this class, and it's not as interactive as I would like. So apologies for that, but stay with me. I'm going to open it up to conversation in just a few minutes. Take a look at this. 
This is from the Alter Rebbe in the book of Tanya, the founder of the Chabad movement, text number nine. He writes in chapter 33 of Tanya, this is what man, in other words, human beings, uh, is all about. And this is the purpose of man's creation and of the creation of all the worlds, both the lofty and the lowly, that God should have this dwelling in the lowly realms. In other words, the purpose of life and of our existence is to make a home for God in this, on this earth, down here. But it's still down. It's still the lowly realms. There's lofty and there's lowly. There's still a hierarchy. If you remove the hierarchy and you say, no, no, the lowly realm is really the highest, that's a slippery slope to forgetting why you're there in the first place. If you jump into the world and you say, this is great. This is where I'm meant to be. You run the risk of forgetting why you're there. You're only there to lift it up. It's like what I told you in a previous class about Jacob and Esau. The whole geshef, the whole business only works if Jacob doesn't want to wear the clothes of Esau and only puts it on because his mother told him to, because he has to get the blessings. If he wants to, then he's going to become an Esau. An Esau. Right? If he's excited to put on those clothes and go hunting, so then he, that's it, he just became Esau. It only works when he realizes, when he, it's only, it only works when he feels, I'd love to pray and study all day. I'd love to meditate and be isolated. But I have a calling. I have to be involved in the world. I need to earn a living, and I have to make a difference here. I have to be boots on the ground. That's the perspective that creates the elevation. But that, but that perspective is, there's what I would want, where I am, but I can lift it up. If it's, this is all there is, then there's no transformation that happens. And that's what Moses was telling Korach. What Moses tells Korach is, Korach, you're right, sort of. You're right that the material experience of the Israelites are holy. Everyone's holy. But if the Israelites forget what their purpose is, which is to lift up the material world to a higher strata, to a higher place, if they believe that it's as high as it can get, then the work, the avodah, the service stops. And then the land will consume its inhabitants. And so my friends, this explains why. We've answered all the questions. And this also explains why, I'll go through them one by one. This also explains why Korach and his henchmen and his cohort um, experienced such a dramatic demise. Korach believed in two paths that are equal. Moses believed in two paths that are hierarchical because that creates the striving for something higher. Korach believed in two equal paths, but each equal path on its own leads to disaster. The spiritualist who forgets about the materialism is someone who is so lofty that it's disconnected from reality. The person who's the, the materialist who forgets about something higher will descend and be consumed. So what happens? Some of Korach's members end up swallowed by the ground. Think about it. Swallowed by the earth. If you follow the material path and don't look up, get swallowed by the earth. But if you follow the spiritual path and don't look down, you get consumed by the fire. Those were the two paths of demise. Some got swallowed by the earth, the purely materialist, and the purely spiritualist got consumed and elevated by the fire. Both are not ideal. Why, why, why did they end up like that? It's because they said there are two parallel paths. Parallel paths don't work in this regard. They don't work. 
The, way, the only way it works is if there's a hierarchy. If the scholar feels that there is work to be done on the ground and I need to also go onto the ground. And if the, the person on the ground says, I need to also study and pray. I need to get my spiritual oxygen so that I don't forget why I'm here in the first place. That's the only way it works. If everybody believes that their avod, that their own little box is perfect and holy the way it is, and no one looks to the other for support up and down, top and down, that reciprocal relationship, then one is going to end up in the earth and one's going to end up disintegrating into the air uh, like smoke from a fire. So what's the bottom line? What's the conclusion? The conclusion of this all, and again, this is, these are themes that have been running through uh, some of the classes before. The, 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 the bottom line of this class is that in the end, each of us has a role to play. And like Korach said, each one has a holy role to play, but it only works if we're looking to the other's role. It doesn't work in isolation. It works in a reciprocal, top-down type of relationship. If we're living primarily in the material world, we must also set times for isolated prayer, study, and meditation, the higher activities. And if we're living primarily in the spiritual world, we must set times for grounded action to make a difference in the world, the lower activities. If we're on the ground, we have to go up. If we're up, we have to go down. It's only through this integrated approach, not parallel paths, everyone is holy, no one should judge. It's only through an integrated approach that we truly lift the world to the state that it was originally intended to be in. And that is to be a home for God on earth. May we each do our part and may our collective efforts working together, not in isolation, and each one of us striving up and striving down, may all of our efforts culminate in the ultimate realization of a home for God on earth with the coming of Mashiach may be speedily in our days. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for joining me for this course. Thank you, Dr. Maxi. Um, thank you for being part of this experience and this journey, this six-part journey called Secrets of the Bible. I hope that you enjoyed exploring stories that, you, that could be studied on any number of levels. I hope you enjoyed exploring it from a bit of a deeper perspective, from the perspective of Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. And I hope that some of the messages resonated for you um, throughout, this, uh, throughout this series. All right, a few quick announcements, and then I'm going to open it up to take questions and comments and, and, and discussion. A few very important announcements relating to future studies. So number one, next week, in one week's time, in other words, next Tuesday night, uh, December 8th at 8 p.m., same bat time, same bat channel, well, different Zoom link, but we're, we're, we're launching our brand new four-part Talmud series. This is going to be an incredible opportunity for everyone and anyone to explore the brilliant depths of Talmud study. If you've never studied Talmud before, this is a great chance to jump in. If you studied it before, you will also appreciate this course of study. The topic is going to be, you're going to gain general skills and general Talmudic know-how, 
But the specific topic and area of discussion is going to be buying and selling entities that are not tangible or that don't yet exist. If you want to think about it in modern terms, it's about buying and selling stocks in a company or futures or something that is a non-tangible. What are the laws associated with that? And it affects many areas of philosophy and law and practice. So join us next week for the, the launch of a four-part series on Talmud called Decoding Talmud. It's going to be taught by a colleague of mine, a true scholar. His name is Rabbi Mendel Jacobson. So join us, intownjewishacademy.org slash Talmud for that course. Next, um, I need to mention that we have, very exciting, just announced it today. First email went out today. Just secured this. Been working on it for a little, bit, little while. Are you familiar with the Iron Dome in Israel? Yes. We are going to have live, live for this community, for our Atlanta community, live from Israel, the chief engineer of the Iron Dome technology, the fellow who created, the, the, it, was a, it was a team, but he headed up the team of engineers to build the Iron Dome. It's going to take place next, not this Saturday night, next Saturday night, which is Hanukkah. As we celebrate Hanukkah, and as your menorahs will be lit in your homes, join us online as we learn about, from the inside, behind-the-scenes story of the modern miracles within Israel. The ancient miracles of the Maccabees, we know about. The mighty overcoming, sorry, the, the weak overcoming the mighty, the few over the many. What about the modern-day miracles? Next Saturday night, Modern Miracles, a Cafe Chabad experience. Why do we call it Cafe Chabad? Well, BC, before Corona, we would gather here at Chabad and or in Town Jewish Academy, and we would have a Malava Malka, a dinner, Havdallah, and do the whole thing. Well, listen, we may not be able to gather in person on that, on that level, but here's what, here's what I'm offering. Sign up, join us. You'll get the, the talk. We'll do Havdallah online, and you'll be able to pick up your own little dinner. Before Shabbat on Friday, you can pick up a box, a gift box with homemade latkes and sufganiyo jelly donuts with dips and whatnot, all the accoutrements to enjoy and to eat. So you pick up the food on Friday. Come Saturday night, you warm it up a little bit. You light your menorah, you warm it up a little bit and join us as we eat and learn together. It's going to be amazing. His name is Ari uh, Seisher, and he is incredible, incre incredible genius and engineer. He works for Israeli defense. Uh, he works for um, a big defense uh, um, contractor for the, for the Israeli government, for the Israeli defense forces. So you don't want to miss this next Saturday night, Cafe Chabad Modern Miracles. Um, otherwise, oh, one more thing, last announcement. Next month, January, toward the end, mid to late January, we're launching a brand new series called Journey of the Soul. It's all about the soul and the afterlife. So join us for that six-part series, Journey of the Soul. Take a look on our website for more information on that. All right, that's all of the announcements. Oh, I have more stuff up my sleeve, but I, I, I'm not at liberty to share it with you um, yet. It's coming, coming soon, more stuff that's amazing. But thank you all for joining. Thank you for all of your support and your learn, uh, learning together and, and, and being part of this experience. And now I will take a break and allow you to, to ask questions, to jump in, to share your thoughts. 
The floor is yours. I have a quick question. Yes. Rabbi Ari, thank you so much for this series. I really enjoyed it. Um, Pleasure. Thank you. I have just one very quick question for clarification. So um, my understanding was that Cora was uh, extremely wealthy person. So it means, like, where did he get it? So it's like uh, um, you mentioned that Levy uh, don't possess anything, didn't possess anything, but he actually owned a lot of stuff. Excellent question. I'm assuming it was Bitcoin. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it was. I, I don't know. That's along the lines of what what was asked before. Like, where do you get the money? But now you're asking it based on everything we talked about. He's supposed to be the anti-materialist. He's supposed to be the spiritual guy. So how did he get all that money? And 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 how did he hold on to it? It's a good question. I don't know that I have the answer for that right now. And until I look up to see how he got the money, it's a good question. But somehow, he had the means and. I guess he wasn't indulgent in it. He still lived a spiritually kind of, you know, secluded life, even though he had access to what he had access to. I know I'm not giving you a great answer. It's a good question. I, I don't have, I don't have a, an easy answer at my fingertips. It's a good question. It's a good question. All right. Other questions, comments? Um, I had a question. Yes. I need to remember it, so if you could give me a moment. <laughs> sure, no problem. Oh, so I think it was, so even though, like, it's a hierarchy between, like, the spiritual and the mundane, if they're, they're both, like, valued roles, people working in one or the other, I don't feel like it's such a, I don't feel like there's such a dichotomy between Korach and Moshe. Like, weren't they... I mean, they were kind of looking at it slightly differently, but it's not Correct. like Moshe was saying, oh, the material people aren't worth anything. Correct. You're right. 100% right. In other words, the difference between Moses and Korach was so subtle. The difference is, do you look at it as parallel or do you look at it as top down? But in both, both are valued. So Korach said, look, the scholar is wonderful. The business person is wonderful. They're, they're equal, equal side by side, parallel tracks. They're both you know, doing their thing and serving God. And Moses says, Korach, you're missing a, a small, subtle point, but that small, subtle point is the difference between success and failure. If the business person thinks of themselves and pats themselves on the back and says, I'm fine, you know, and, 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 and materialism is good, it's also holy. If that's how they think, then, then they're going to slowly fall into the Esau way. And if the scholar thinks, I don't need to worry about what's going on in the world also, that's also a fatal mistake. In other words, the, the parallel isolation perspective, you know, each one is good and, and, and everyone's holy, that's where there's a, that's, that's ultimately where there's a breakdown. That's where the, 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 there's failure. So it seems like a very subtle distinction, side by side or top down, but it makes all the difference in the world. But you're right. It's a very subtle difference, but sometimes... That determines success or failure. And again, the, the key idea here is, I was trying to think of a good, of a good analogy um, about like, why it's so critical that the person that's involved in the world realizes that there's something higher, right? Why does it have to be something higher as opposed to something else? Because without the sense of longing, of wanting something higher, 
You're never going to lift it higher. Right? It's like, if you're at work and you're not missing your family, right? If you're at work and you're not thinking about coming home to your family, I, I, I don't know how to finish that sentence, but because I'm not sure how, what actually follows that. But what, what I'm thinking, and again, I, this is a, a, it's a half-baked analogy. I was trying to think of an analogy. This is, you know, maybe one of the closest things that I can think of on the fly is, you know, if if you're working to 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 support not only financially but to augment and support and to you know to enhance the family, then while you're working, you really should be wanting to be with your family. You with me on that? Does that kind of make sense? What I'm saying, sort of. But if you're so in love with the work that you forget about the family, then is it really about the family? Is it really about the work? That's kind of what I'm saying over here. That's, that's kind of a parallel. So there, there really still needs to be a hierarchy as opposed to a parallel experience. Again, the, 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 what, what Moses is essentially saying is, Korach, your, your perspective leads to what exactly happened. Either it's being swallowed in the earth or being set aflame and, 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 and going poof in, in, in a blazing fire. That's the end that, that's the inevitable conclusion to those two paths. Either you, 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 you totally disconnect from reality and you fly off into Himmel, into heaven, or you end up like an Esau being consumed by the earth, by, by earthliness. In order to have the magical middle ground, which is not middle, but it's the magical transformation, you have to have a carefully structured, interdependent balance but not a balance, a hierarchical, hierarchical balance between the two. It's not a side-by-side. -side. That's the thing. It's not side-by-side. -side. It's top-down. Right? The, the, the person working has to know that should be thinking, I can't wait till I get home and, and can, can study some Torah. Or I can't wait for the morning when I can pray and, and not be worried about work and then I have to go to work. But should be looking forward to those moments of oxygen. And that fuels the rest of the day. I hope that makes sense. I hope that, but you're right, it is subtle, but, but I hope there's enough of a distinction that it makes sense. Uh, yeah, thank you. Pleasure. All right. Any other questions or comments? Otherwise, we will officially, that's it. All right, I want to, again, thank you all for being here and being part of the journey. Hey, Mindy, good to see you. Um, all right, we'll see you soon. Don't forget, take a look at the website. Join us for the Talmud course, for the uh, Iron Dome, Inside the Iron Dome, Modern Miracles presentation, and Hanukkah party, and Latka, and Donut celebration, and, of course, the JLI, Journey of the Soul. All right, Laila Tov, have a wonderful evening. We'll see you all soon. Oh, I'm sorry, rabbis and announcements. I forgot to mention, on Hanukkah, on the Sunday of Hanukkah, we're having the most remarkable experience, community experience, drive-in Hanukkah celebration at Pond City Market. You take your car, you take the family, you take friends, whoever is in your little, you know, COVID safe health bubble, put them in your car or take a few cars and drive on in. It's a free event. If you want food, you can pay a few bucks and we'll, we'll have food for you. We'll have dinner for you that you get in your car. You stay in your car or you can come out, but stay, uh, you know, safe. There's a big screen, like a drive-in movie. Big screen, you tune in on your radio, on your car, and you hear the program. And the kid, There's a movie for kids. There's stuff for adults. It's amazing. You're going to love it.
It's open to the whole community. We got Pond City Market. We got, uh, we, got, we, we got the whole thing rolling. So join us and be part of it. That's the Sunday of Hanukkah. I forgot the date. Oh, I guess it's December 13th. Sunday, December 13th. All right. That's it. Lila Tov, it's great to see you all. Take care. All right. Bye, Mom. Good to see you all. And everybody. Good to see you all. Lila Tov.